Yes, hello again, everyone. Welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, we've got quite a bit to talk about tonight. Yes, we do. We have the Indianapolis 2008 archive release. We have the Badlands sneak peek from uh, from No Nukes, and uh, and Bruce was on uh, on with Stephen Colbert last week, and he's also he also was on what some British show with with Barack Obama talking Grand about Norton. the Renegades book and German TV. They've been all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> They're really trying to promote the hell out of that book, aren't they? It's good. I ha- actually haven't really had a chance to spend a lot of time with it. I've leafed through it. It's a Same gorgeous here. book. Oh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. But but like you, I haven't had a chance to really sit down and, and go through the content. I assume a lot of it is just the same from what they talked about on their Renegades podcast uh, last summer. Yes, I think that covers a lot of it. And uh, one of us, I believe, has listened to the entire podcast <laughs> and the other has not. That is true. That is that is still very accurate. Well, then you'll learn something from the book, I think. I guess but, I will. I'm looking for I, I will. I will read the book. I, I, prom, I promise you that <laughs> I'm going to as well. But let's get to the big thing, which is the new archive release, as you said, Indianapolis 2008. Now, this was a show that was always destined to be released. It completes the Danny trilogy. We got Boston, which was the last official show with Danny. Now we have Indianapolis, which was his guest appearance before he unfortunately passed away. And then we got Tampa, which was the first show after his funeral. So on an emotional level, we've got pretty much that entire story now. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a very solid release. What do you think of it? Yes, it's very solid. Uh, the, set, the set list doesn't uh, doesn't tell the whole story, obviously. Uh, I mean, Spirit and Sandy in and of themselves don't seem to don't seem to sh- to jump out at, at people or at least at me anymore but would include the fact that it's Danny's last performance ever with the E Street band and and those two songs suddenly become a lot more powerful well i think it impacted the entire show of course and backstreets had reposted what jason federici had wrote about that night and just the really devastating circumstances that Danny was literally pulled out of his hospital bed yeah. by Max and Becky Weinberg and convinced to go play one more time. And they, and they took him on the private jet. Mm-hmm. What must've been going on on stage that night is it's really, it's hard to conceive and it just must've been so difficult. And some of those songs, Sandy and spirit in the night and promised land and, and even long walk home when Danny was not on stage, it, you just think of the emotions that must've been running through the band. It's, it's overwhelming. Yeah, uh, Danny's presence, even when he wasn't on stage, as you said, uh, was really felt throughout the show. I really, I thought that the the performances of Devil's Arcade and Badlands actually popped a lot more, or, ha- or had had a lot more, a lot more emotional depth than than they normally do on at this part of the tour. And you can't think of any other reason except for the fact that that Danny was there. What you say about the emotional impact of the show that that's why it was released, of course, and mm-hmm. everyone knows that. If you're looking at the Magic Tour as the entirety of the tour, is this a show that would have necessarily been on a performance level, one of the picks? I don't know about that. Probably not. But it it was picked for the right reasons. And there are going to be more shows from the Magic Tour. I I think it's really a question of sequencing. They, They did give the three Danny shows pretty close together over the last couple of years. And 
again, you, you can't argue with these being released. But in the future, I think now we'll turn to some of the other big nights from this tour, which haven't been covered yet. Well, you, you kind of confused me there about the about the, about the way and the order and the and the frequency which which these Danny shows have been released. The Tampa show was released in at least early 19, if not if not early 18. Right. right, but there was only one show in between Tampa and Indianapolis, well, correct? Yeah, Greensboro. Yeah, and and that was another one with a heavy Danny influence. Well, as I remarked in, in my Backstreets piece, it seemed like every show from from Tampa on had to the, to the end of the tour basically had Danny's presence uh, as as a shadow in in some fashion. Yeah, at least from all the U.S. dates from Tampa through the end, which I guess was only about two weeks. Uh, to the end, that end of that leg, rather, they played the Blood Brothers film or video to start the show, and they kind of and Bruce talked about going deep into the box and telling some of those Danny stories about the giant marijuana plant and st- stealing the elevator buttons out of hotels, and you know those are actually were pretty funny stories. But so he was definitely definitely felt in the over the course of that of those few weeks. Oh yeah, and and I agree with you and and I think really all that we're talking about here is sequencing. There are certain key moments of the tour which haven't really been covered yet. Earlier in 2007, the the summer of 2008 when I do think he started to move away a little bit from the emotional aspect of of Danny's death and and then certainly towards the end of the tour when pretty much every night was huge. We've gotten St. Louis Nashville is another show we commonly referenced. There were uh, what was the Virginia show in that run? The Richmond show? Yes. Yeah, that was, I, I know that, that was a fun well show. That, I mean, that was that was crushing on you, man. So again, I, I think this was an excellent release in Indianapolis, and and now I am looking forward to getting to some other aspects of the tour. Really, the issue here is we know they have everything from the Magic Tour. <laughs> And every show is really worthy of a release in its own right. So the fact that's true, <laughs> I, I think that some of the frustration you saw online wasn't necessarily about the show, because, again, this show was being released. It has to be released. But the because they have so many shows from this tour and there are so many good shows from the tour, you sort of want to get to more in a quicker fashion. And and of course, we know they're basically doing one a year. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 all very true. I mean, we, I think we all wish they would release. All right, well, this month this month we're doing the Magic Tour, so we're going to drop five different shows. <laughs> I don't, unfortunately, I don't see that happening. It would no, be a dream, but happen. it's not happening. <laughs> you no. know, same with same with same with Wrecking Ball, in my opinion. So, all right, so let's move on. What else do we have? You mentioned the Badlands from No Nukes. Now, yep. I don't want to get too much into this because let's evaluate it as the entire project together when we get a chance to see it there are some quibbles that people are having with the badlands i, I don't want to focus on the video i don't think we've gotten the video watching it on youtube on i watched Not it on my same. ipad once Not the I, same. Can't, <laughs> I can't comment on it the audio i will say you know i'm a little surprised it's a little sterile to my ears and we do have two songs that have been officially released through itunes sherry darling and badlands it seems possible to me, and and I did go back and listen to the Nugs releases today. Maybe the audience wasn't properly mic'd at those shows. Well, it's certainly a possibility. If our, our only two uh, pieces of evidence are the, the the original Nugs releases and these, then I guess the uh, the original No Nuke stuff released back in 1980. I mean, it's very possible. But as for me, it, it 
it doesn't bother me at all. I, I, I have enough crappy audience recordings in my collection. I don't, I don't need it. See, the other night when it came out and, and you know, as stuff is released Thursday night at 9 p.m. West Coast time, but because it's a Friday release on the East Coast, I went to No Nukes and, and the new War on Drugs album, which is superb, came out. And I was going to listen to the War on Drugs album all the way through and then go back to No Nukes. And I was like, all right, let me just put on the Badlands before I start the War on Drugs record. And I clicked play and, and I had it on my on my main system, which is pretty good and <laughs> i had the sound turned up and when it started right away this was before i saw any video or anything and i was just really surprised because it, it does sort of sound like what you were just saying that it's recorded <laughs> it doesn't sound that live i mean it, it's missing the ambience of the room now again this is one of those things that they didn't really control the filming of this show it was done by the filmmakers who were working with the No Nukes organization. They had to get the rights and finally get the film. We know the story on that. Who knows how it was done? It was 40 years ago. So it, it's hard to really get upset about it. And we don't know what elements they had. But the audio mix, I was a little surprised. It it did not blow me away like some of the other Clear Mountain mixes. Like if, if you think about the Clear Mountain mix of Passaic, which is an archive release, not an official Sony release. I mean, to me, that's that's far superior. Okay, I, I can I can see that. I can see that. But as you said, we don't know what they had access to, and we'll just and also as you said, we'll just have to wait till we get the whole thing, and we can yeah. really really delve into it as a as a complete thing, and not and not a couple of songs piecemeal. Yeah, I mean, what I want to do is I want to get the the Blu-ray. I'm going to watch it, you know, on a large screen with a with the surround sound pumped up and I'll get the full sort of experience that I can have here and and then I'll see what I think of it. So we're going to save that for another episode down the road. But it is interesting because it's an important release. As we've said, they, they unfortunately did not capture the band on film. And, you know, I think everyone is hoping, fingers crossed, toes crossed, you know, <laughs> that this is going to be mind blowing. And, and sometimes expectations are, are the devil. Well, if you can separate the, the tech, any kind of technical issues, technical problems you may have with it and just focus on the music and what you're what you're seeing. Uh, and Bruce's frenetic energy, the band Clarence looking so alive, those the long shots that show the entire band in on one screen. I mean, that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty mind blowing right there to th the just to see. Yeah. So let's let's wait till it comes out and we'll talk about it again. As far as the Colbert, let's just cover this quickly. It was interesting in the sense that uh, Bruce did perform. He performed the river in a rather unique arrangement because he didn't play harmonica on it. I thought it was great. What did you think? Oh, I thought it was very powerful, and it should have been a no-brainer. I, I think I, I predicted here that he would do one of, you know, I'll see you in my dreams or Born to Run or Thunder Road. But considering he was talking about no nukes and or a little bit about no nukes, this made this made perfect sense. And it was, yeah, it was very, it was, yeah, it was a very unique arrangement. I mean, he's done it acoustic going back to, I don't know, what did he do? Going back to '95 or '96, I forget. 96, yeah. <laughs> I forget when exactly he year. debuted it on the Joe tour. So, 
um, and he's done it in a few different arrangements, but this one was definitely, definitely unique. Uh, the one last thing from the Colbert that, that I just loved when he Colbert showed a portion of no nukes and they had Bruce up on the screen in a box at 72, watching his 30 year old <laughs> self with this look of amusement on his face. And I, one wonders what was going through his mind. Now, Colbert then asked him if he felt any differently on stage these days than he did as a 30 year old. And he said he really doesn't. And I, and I believe that because I believe that when Bruce takes the stage, he has to believe in his mind that he is every bit the performer that he always was and that he's going to hold the audience just like he always did. And, and in fact, we know that he does. So, but it was, it was pretty remarkable to watch Bruce watching the footage of no nukes. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. And re regarding what Bruce said, I'm not sure if, if he's thinking about his performance on at the age of 72 versus what he was doing at 30 and that's not going through his mind. What's going through his mind is that he's going to do the best the best show he can do, whether he's 30, 40, 50, or, or 70. Yeah, and the other day when he made the remark on one of the interviews that you're going to be seeing the East Street Band next year at the, at its peak, and people were <laughs> a little upset about that. Oh, get over that, it. That's a mindset thing. He's <laughs> got to believe that. He's not, I don't think Bruce, if he, you really sat down and gave, gave him truth serum, is going to be like, yeah, the East Street Band without Danny and Clarence and and what it is in 2022 is what the East Street Band was in 1978. But when he takes the stage, he just got to believe we are giving you our peak. And, and yeah. that's who he is. And that's why he kicks ass when he's on stage. <laughs> it's all true. He's going to come out and he's going to he's going to blow you away. He's going to take you on your on your mystery ride. And that's what he's going to do. That's what he's he's done his entire life. Yeah. And and one of the things we're all going to have to adjust to is he's not 30 anymore. I mean, the shows are going to reflect clearly. It, it's been five years since they last played. He's 72 years old. The, the shows are not going to be the same, but everyone, we're all going to have to be in the mindset that none of us are getting any younger and <laughs> no. we just have to live with the show as it is and accept it for what it is. And, and I think, especially because they have such great material from letter to you, I, I would imagine the shows are going to be fabulous. It's not going to be the same show we did on the darkness tour. Well, yeah, he's, he, he's not going to do any knee slides. He's not going to do any crowd surfing. He's not doing, he's not jumping off the piano anymore. And, and that's okay. comes out, give, gives us a two and a half hour plus, tight set just you know balls to the wall rock and roll that that he's done without some of that extra stuff that really in the end doesn't matter ready for a head-bangingly good time dive into the world of heavy metal with the brutally delicious podcast here we don't just talk music we welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. 
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Let's move on to our main topic. Of course, we're talking tracks disc two still. We're going to pick back up with Wages of Sin. When we last left off, we were talking about living on the edge of the world and talking a little bit about Electric Nebraska. Wages was recorded early in the 82 sessions at the power station. And I believe it was among the first songs in that time frame. Is that correct? Yeah, it was It was written sometime in 1980. Early 1982 was recorded as you said, during the election Nebraska sessions in, in April and uh, April and May. And again, I, I think it's here because he needed some kind of slow song, some kind of ballad to kind of balance out all the river rockers. I think thematically also it fits very nicely between living on the edge of the world and, and then take them as they come, which follows. Obviously, they're all relationship songs and the wages of sin now he has been quoted as saying he cut it because it cut too close to the bone i can see that this definitely seems to be giving us some insight into what was going on in his head at the time and wages of sin is a song that i love i it's it creates such a mood mm-hmm. and even though it, it's got some bite to it, it's a very compelling song now it, this is not one of the songs that would have been a hit because even in 1980, this is not hit material, but I think it does sort of give an insight into the songwriting that was going on in 82, 83. And again, perhaps a little insight into what some of the Nebraska material might sound like with the band. Right. I I think you nailed it all right there. Um, To me, I mean, this is a relationship song. And from what I read in, in, in his, in his autobiography, it's, Sounds like how he would be with how his breakups went with your makeup running down your face and that kind of unable to and unknow and unknowing how to move on in a relationship like that. And that's why it leads into take them as they come where he's literally saying take them as they come. <laughs> you sort of have to learn to live with things. That's true. And it is a wages of sin is I mean, it's a beautiful song. The I mean, it's beautiful, but you can feel the tension from every note. And I want to put out a little plug I'm sure some people have heard it, but there was a um, it was a tribute album to Nebraska called Badlands. Are you yes. familiar with that, Hal? I am. Okay, there's there's it disappears as a bonus track on there, and it's by Damien Gerardo and Rose Thomas, and it it is a beautiful version. I mean, actually, it's the arrangement is so similar to Bruce's version that it doesn't push the envelope much, doesn't doesn't change anything, but the fact that there's a the, there's a male singing duetting with a woman just makes it more powerful and, and it changes the, the the pronouns to I and you and it makes it more more immediate. Oh, I think that's that's a, a good and perceptive point that you're making there. Thank you. Thank you. It just it's it's one of these things where it's it's a song that doesn't get a lot of attention, but I think that version is just you know it's it's I think it's as great as Bruce's. Wow, that that's high praise. <laughs> Imagine if Bruce and Patty did a duet on this one. Perhaps it would have worked better than Fire. I don't know on the Broadway. <laughs> well, it would have been a very although I did like song. Fire. Fire is a lot of fun. I just yeah, this is not fun in the, in the show. I, I 
as we said when we talked about it, we don't want to go back into it, but uh, it did not have the compelling nature to me that Brilliant the Skies had. Well, well Wages of Sin is not a fun song. And no, it, but I, neither is Brilliant fit- the Skies. Well, no, but that was that was more of a hit, and I don't think it was as as you said. It doesn't hit as close to the bone, or at least close to a particular bone that Bruce probably doesn't want <laughs> exposed. Okay, fair enough. So let's move on to take them as they come, and this is another track that I, I was trying to think today where this song could have gone on the river, and really the the only place I could have seen it, and I'm not suggesting taking ties that bind off, but really the only place I could have seen it going was to open the record. Okay, I can see that. I, I, I kind of slotted it in as a alternative to, to Jackson Cage again. Thematically, I think it would have been more apt to the, in that spot, but and musically, but again, there's no ob- it's not it's not an obvious one. No, and, and this is it's a really good track and it was it was really good when it was performed live. I don't think this is as seminal uh, a cut as some of the other tracks we're talking about here, whether it's Restless Nights or where the bands are or loose ends. This this is a really good song, and for any other artist, you'd be like, "Wow, I can't believe this guy left this off." But <laughs> here, it's only it's it's way down the list of songs you're shocked that got left off. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not as not one of my favorites, especially when compared to those. But it's a good solid. It would be would have made a great solid album track, not a single, but it would have been up there with the Cadillac Ranches and and I'm a Rockers of the World. Yeah, had he placed it, we would have never thought anything of it. it. We would have thought it was a good song. It probably would have been played a little bit over the years. But it, it, it it's not one of those cuts where you're sitting there sort of pounding the table going, oh, my God, you, how did this get left off? That's <laughs> nah, true. True. But it does have one of my uh, favorite Gary Talent riffs uh, at, at the end of the song when, when it kind of breaks down. I, I, I just during that breakdown, not when the song breaks down. And I just I love love hearing that, and maybe that's why I love the those I, old IM uh, recordings that we had back of uh, the Staples Center show, ten twenty three ninety nine. I just love hearing Gary's bass on that one. There are definitely some IEMs where you can see hear Gary as much as you want. <laughs> very true, very true. And speaking of true, let's be true. Move now on this to is track a gr- ten. This is a great track, and this is one of those songs that falls into his catalog. It, when I was listening to it again today. And, and of course, this is a later song, but it, it it works in sort of the same way that I'll Work For Your Love works, where it's clearly a relationship song, but he also seems to be singing to the audience. And and certainly there have been cases where the song has been played, I think, live, where where that perspective, singing to the audience, is perhaps the heightened, more important point of the song. What do you think? Okay, that's interesting. I hadn't looked at it that way. I, w- I was looking at it as kind of a of a compliment, complimentary song to to I want to marry you, where it's 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 kind of a it's kind of a fantasy. It's it's I'll be true to you and I want to marry you. They're they're, they're set in this in the same kind of ideal idealism of love. Um, oh, I so, fully agree. I fully agree with that. Do you? But you don't see like with him pledging that he's going to be true. That in a way, as much as that's certainly to the girl he's singing to in the song, there's also an aspect of it that that's about the bond to the relation uh, to the audience. I'm sorry. Oh well, now that you mention it, I, I I do see that, and I think it it was almost you could you could argue that that's what he was doing when he was playing it as the second song on the the Tunnel Love shows in '88. 
That's exactly sure. what I was thinking about. Okay. And and there it works beautifully coming out of Tunnel Love, which it's tied to in a relationship fashion, but it's also making that statement, I'm going to be true to you, the audience. Right. And then if you be true to me. Yes. And well, so and, and that's, at, that's it's almost like he was asking them to to go along with him on this on on this different kind of show at the time. That's actually a really interesting point because that that is that is definitely relevant. The, the show was a lot different than the audience was used to seeing, certainly 78 to 85. And he was asking for their trust. So I think that's a really good point, even though the song fits so well after Tunnel. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And it's been one that I've certainly enjoyed seeing in, in the reunion era, even if Clarence never got the sax solo right again. Well, that's perhaps a bit rough, but it's hard to say it's not true. Anyway, so what's our next song? Ricky Wants a Man of Her Own, which you uh, saw the only live performance of ever. Cool. Yes, and one <laughs> there was so much speculation that night as to why it was being played. Now, it becomes a little relevant because, and I was reading about this in Brian's book, that it, it, it seems to perhaps be written about Pam, uh, Bruce's younger sister, who maybe was rebelling at the time. I guess at the time this song was written in the late 70s, she mm-hmm. would have been in her mid to late teens. Is that right? Yes. Well, I you tie it back to um, he introduced this Sweet Little 16 on the Darkness Tour as kind of being about her or being certainly with her in mind. So I, I think this is exactly what, what she was going through at the time, and especially since she was uh, she was the only one at home at that point. So that it, it, getting back to the Kansas City performance, there was some speculation was Jessica because Jessica was around the same age, I believe, yes. in 2008 as Pam would have been when the song was written. <laughs> there was something Jessica doing uh, perhaps inspired the performance of the song. I don't know. I just I just think we'll he never was, know the answer. No, I, I just think he was just going to see how he could top St. Louis. And there was just no way he was going to do that with an unknown outtake. No, certainly he was not. And I was trying to figure out where this might fit on the album. I don't think there's any place on on the actual River album that this could have gone. This was just a fun song. He 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 wrote it about his sister. Well, sister sister Pam, not sister Ginny. But it just didn't didn't fit anywhere. And it was but it was still a very fun song. Yeah, it's it's a little fun song and and much like if, if it had made the record we'd probably be talking about it like Crush on You in the sense that it's a fun song, not that important. You wouldn't expect that it would be played all that often. Now, we had, of course, heard Ricky Wants a Man of Her Own before tracks came out, right? Yeah, that was one of the outtakes that had circulated for a yeah. while. But it was welcome to have, and and it did, that song never really registered on me in the same fashion as some of these, some of these others, and, and getting to one that certainly did register with me, a sore point because I've still never seen I Want to Be With You live. <laughs> oh, you poor guy. I mean, it. I just can't understand it. But I, and why wasn't it played in 2016? I, well, it was played once, right? Yeah. But yes, now was. this is a now this is a track that you're, you're talking about relationship songs, and this is one that he's really wearing his heart on his sleeve, and. What I was listening to today, I was like, you know, this is really quite over the top in a way. And I'm not in any way because it's a much better song. But really, is it that different than Real Man? Well, it's much better. Well, it is much better. But I'm talking <laughs> it doesn't about have the, the doesn't have the, the cheesy the, horns. It, no, that is true. And it's got an, it's got a nice little uh, it's got a hook. Come on. But I'm talking about from the perspective of the singer. Well, except for he didn't go with 
he didn't go with a lot of cheesy cliches in this one, did he? he okay, there were no there were no apes beating on their chest or monkeys beating on their chest. No, but there is uh, a Texaco station. I, which is, and these lines are very comical. Uh, now I lost my job at the Texaco station because instead of pumping gas, I dream of you, which is freaking hysterical. Well, I guess, you know, when you're infatuated with somebody, you can start daydreaming and whatever job you're at, you're going to be distracted. <laughs> and of course, New Jersey is one of the few states that had full service or has full service uh, gas station. This is really, it's very declaratory. <laughs> he's laying it all out there. Yeah, he's, and, there's, there's no subtlety here. No. And what a great track, though. I mean, really, uh, on the record. Now, if this had been released in 1980, one <laughs> thinks that this would have also been a hit. Yes. Uh, Huge. Even the live performances, which, again, <laughs> I've never personally seen. But the, the live performances I have heard uh, through the magic of bootlegging, uh, awesome. I mean, mm -hmm. Why the song isn't played more now, I, I, of course, we do say that a lot. But this really, and this is not a song you need to know. That's the thing. There are certain songs that get played. Back in Your Arms is another song like that, as we, as we always say. Back in Your Arms, the audience may not know it, but by the time he's done with it, they're totally into it. Yes, I totally. Yeah, I, I agree. And you're right, the way they opened it with each band member, well, one band member at a time, starting with Bruce on the guitar. And then Max and Roy and Clarence. It's, it, it, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I only saw it live like twice. So, uh, again, it would, I would love to have more opportunities to see it. Okay, well, that's two more times than me. Sore point, <laughs> but. Oh, well. Out of all you, the you, songs <laughs> I've seen. I know. And I saw Ricky Wants a Man of Her Own. And, and you're, you're going to cite all these other ones. But I really. The, the, it remains a sore point only because, as you're aware. It was being played every other night on the reunion right. tour. At the, and at the I arrived. Moments. I arrived in New Jersey the day after it was last performed, and then the night I arrived, they opened with which Ties was seven twenty nine. They opened with Ties to Bind, which was awesome. But you would have expected in all those nights at some point he would have gone back to I Want to Be With You. He never did, and he never really brought it back on the reunion tour much at all after that. So, and or anyway. ever again, I think it's been played tw what, twice since. It was once on what, uh, the Fort Lauderdale show of the uh, Magic Tour in May, and then 2016. I mean, you can imagine the arguments they must have had. Steve must have been like, are you crazy? This song's got to be on there. <laughs> And and then and it would fit. It would have been right there with instead of instead of crush on you. Perfect, perfect oh, yeah. slotting that, there. That's a swap you make in a heartbeat. Exactly, exactly. Imagine and I don't think we'd be talking about crush on you in the same way. Had forty years later, if crush yeah. on you was an outtake, I, we we would definitely not be saying, "Oh, this is an instant classic." Why did he leave it off? No, not at all. But then we always talk about Bruce not releasing alternate versions of, of songs. And here is one, Mary Lou. That's basically Be True in a different arrangement. The, the, one of many different arrangements. What was the other one? Little White Lies? Yeah. Now, the, the, the Mary Lou, and it is basically Be True in another arrangement. The, the arrangement here is, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's got more of the punk power pop sound to it. And, and Max is much more driving the song. Mm -hmm. than the track they ultimately released. Now, the Be True that got released to me is the more effective version of the song. Yeah, he, he, he totally got it right. He totally got it right with this one. And I'm glad it's included here, but it's not one that I was excited to hopefully hear as the 99 tour got underway. 
it, it's never been played, right? No, it has not. I think actually, I think it's been sound checked once or twice over the years, but it's never made it into an actual show. It wouldn't make much sense. It, there are certain alternates, and and we saw the alternate racing at, at Mohegan, although it, he didn't go full Monty with it. It was sort no. of like an amalgamation of the two. Yeah. And so, he's done the alternate racing with Grushecki a number of times. Like, it's hard with some of these alternates. You, you, you could never make the argument, except for just variety, that Mary Lou would be better to present in a show than be true. That's I mean, true. in my opinion. You are 100% correct. It's like why now, play why, why play Mary Lou when you have a, a much better beach rule that, that's that they already have worked on and played considerably. Yes. Now the next track is also an alternate, uh, the stolen car. Uh, and going back to what I was saying, the intro to the river at the garden in 2009, he specifically cited stolen cars, a song that opened the, his writing to what would become Tunnel of Love eight years later, well seven years later. This version, certainly, you get exactly what he's saying there. There are lyrics here that are a little bit darker and perhaps flesh the song out more. But I would have to say he made the right call with the with the album version. Well, the album version is a lot darker to me. I mean, at least yes. musically, at least musically. And that's haunting. Yeah, exactly. It's haunting. That's a, that's a, that's the best way to put it. And this one is almost it's almost happy. It's almost like a upbeat kind of song. Except where he gets to the to the dream part and about the son you may kiss the bride and and you're right he 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 made the right call here and and I'm thankful it got released it got released on tracks the and of course the stolen car this version was what was originally on the ties to bind so this did actually almost get released but haunting I think is the right word and there's something especially the way stolen car winds up being placed on the river. And we saw this when the album was performed uh, from front to back. It's really effective in that spot. And 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 the way the organ comes in at the end, it it, it that really is a perfect moment. Well, and I and I was thinking it was perfect coming out of Fade Away. Oh yeah. It's like it's it's like a continuation of of that story. It's like I don't want to fade away. And then now he's driving a stolen car through the pitch black night and. It's almost like it's taking that breakup to a much darker place. Within all these arguments that certain songs got left off, I mean, the one thing you can say is, I think on side one and two of the river in particular, like with Crush on You and maybe you were saying with Jackson Cage, there's a little bit more room to maneuver. I think once you get to side three and especially side four, it's hard to make an argument artistically that there should have been changes. What you would have to basically argue is, it's a different conceptual album, which is much more pop orient. Yes. Yeah. There's, I, I was trying to do that and, you know, I, I put living on the edge of the world as a possible alternate to Ramrod and roulette as a potential alternate to the price you pay. But I, I, I don't think that makes it better at all. I it probably even take us that takes it down a notch. Yeah, I, I agree to the extent that these are lost arguments and certainly some of these songs should have been released, but the river stands as a document and and it's hard to change it. I think your idea of putting out some kind of ancillary project, maybe in 82, late 82, with 10 songs or whatever, but it seems unlikely to me that they would have put out a band album, especially one with this sort of material and not toured at that time. And of course, they just wrapped up a huge tour. Right. And if certainly, I think a, a more appropriate time would have been like 
sometime in late 81, like right before Christmas 81, because, you know, as we talked by the time January of 82 rolled around, they were, he was already looking to the next project. You know, that's, I mean, that's what he was doing at that time was always looking forward to what he was going to do next and not really looking back, even if he was just looking back over the, over something from a year, two years ago, he was, he was going to be looking forward and he had no, no interest in re reliving some of that stuff. And perfectly that arrives to the next track. Now we are going to do these last three tracks, although of course they are not lost arguments from the river, the born in the USA demo. And <laughs> the story is well known. The song started out as a, a Vietnam. And then Bruce was looking at a script that had been sent to him by Paul Schrader entitled born in the USA. And there's really no kind way of saying it. He stole the title. <laughs> Yeah, he's done that. He's he's done that. He did that with Promised Land too, from stealing from a Chuck Berry song. But you know, this is a song that that exploded. I mean, you know, if they ever do a Born USA box set, it should start with January third, eighty two, with this song and end on October second, eighty five. But that's a that's a different story. Yeah. Well, the, this the, this was recorded on the four track on that day, January third, nineteen eighty two. Now, there's no argument to be made that this should have been released unless they did some kind of combined project at the time, which would have presented, and The River was a double album, had they presented a double album with Nebraska and Born in the USA in some fashion, and, and they uh, they could have been tied together. That's the only argument for this having been put out at the time. I mean, this is a demo, and and as we know, they recorded the full band version of Born in the USA on, I, I think it was the second day of the sessions when they started and they caught lightning in a bottle. And the it, rest is history. <laughs> yes. And the rest is history. <laughs> Speaking of uh, songs, uh, obviously they did put that one out, but you would think in 1982, they recorded that the second day. You would have thought they would have been running through the streets to get that song out. <laughs> and of course he didn't release a record for two more years after that. Well, going back to what you said though, about releasing both the acoustic and the full band version there there was according to Dave Marsh's glory days they did talk about that they did talk about making a double record with Nebraska being one and then uh, and then the the full band stuff being being the second being side C and D I guess but they wanted the, the acoustic stuff to stand on its own now of course what I'm going to say is that it's just surprising that this was the only song that from the only Nebraska outtake, if you want to call it an outtake, that made it to that made it to this tracks. So I, you know, how could Losing Kind or even Downbound Train not make it here, or Child Bride? I think Child Bride would have. I think that would have blown minds. Well, we're never going to know. It's been widely discussed. Tracks was how many discs originally? It started. Oh, yeah, it started eight. off at eight and went down to yeah, six. and then it went to six, and then it went to four. So. But We're you, never going to know fully what was on those other discs. Uh, presumably at some point, and here we go, uh, presumably <laughs> at some point there's going to be a tracks too. Uh, he widely discussed it in, in the Hyatt interview that he did last year uh, when Letter to You was coming out. So that just remains something that's on the radar and hopefully will emerge one day. And And when it does, no doubt we're going to be all over it. In the meantime, moving on to the next song here, which is Johnny Bye Bye, which was a really sort of a rewritten Chuck Berry song. And he adapted it. So really to reflect on, I think, the final years of Elvis's life. Yeah. And it's very powerful. And 
I've always thought when I when I listen to Johnny Bye Bye, it, it ties into something else that happened on the Born USA tour. He used to do when he did I Can't Help Falling in Love before he'd go into Born to Run. He he used to say, don't let the best of yourself slip mm-hmm. away. And to me, that's what's reflected in this track. Oh, oh, absolutely. And um, it's such it's such a beautiful song that captures the the feeling of, of impending doom that, you know, is coming down on you and you you just you, you just can't es- escape it. And uh, oh, I also want to point out that the mix here on tracks is different than the one uh, that was originally released on as the B side to I'm on fire back in uh, 1985, uh, the B side does not have the count in, which is present on, on this tracks version. One of the things that struck me about that statement, don't let the best of yourself slip away. And I was thinking about it today when listening to the song. And of course I was much younger. So when that was taking place thematically to me, that always read as a message to the audience. Don't let yourself, the best of yourself slip away. But in reality now as an adult, you know, and, and tell me if you feel the same way, I I think it was really Bruce talking to himself, right? Oh, he he very well may have been. Um, the end of Elvis's life was, I'm sure Bruce took it as a warning to, to some extent, and that, that is to stay true to yourself and, and, and to your values. Well, from what we know from what he wrote in the book and everything about the depression and, and some of the struggles he went through, and also very much how he is kept to his artistic principles, I, I think all of that does factor in that he had seen Elvis and perhaps some of the other people who came before him who lost themselves and he, he never wanted that to happen. And, and, and we know, I mean, look, we don't know Bruce personally, but certainly we, we hear a lot through the media and through other sources. And we know the type of life he's living. He's a pretty normal guy. He's made a very concerted effort. And it's probably just the reason what he saw happen to, to other rock stars, namely Elvis, who let themselves just get too wrapped up in everything. And he just wants to live he made it, he made a choice to be normal. He easily could have gone out to L.A. and you know <laughs> done coke upside and one down the other back in the late '80s. But obviously, that that was not what he was going to do. He wanted to be normal. Well, I, yeah, good thing he didn't do coke in the '80s, or at least as far <laughs> as we know. But as far as the normal, yes, he he is for someone who has been in the public eye as long as he has, and who certainly turns out. Millions of people around the world when he wants to and and when he wants to play, he really does come across as as one of the more normal personalities you're you're ever going to see on that larger stage. There's no question about it. No, No question whatsoever. He doesn't have the Vegas hotel suite with, you know. Uh, with a hot tub and whatever in a champagne room and all that stuff like like Elvis did. And so he's he's trying to stay normal. He succeeded, I think. And finally, we come to Shut Out the Light, which, of course, was the B-side to Born in the USA and is presented here as the final song of Tracks Disc 2. This was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was recorded in the Hollywood Hills, uh, part of those demos, right? Yes. It's actually interesting that they got put here because otherwise it's it's in chronological order. But Johnny Bye Bye and Shout Out the Light were recorded in 83, whereas so many of the uh, the stuff on, on, on Disc 3, like My Love Will Not Let You Down, This Heartland, Frankie, those were all recorded in 1982. So he kind of playing around with the timeline there, but at the same token, it's the perfect bridge from the acoustic Born in the USA into the full band USA stuff, era stuff that, that was on the next disc. Yes, 100%. And 
this song has some of his most precise writing. There's the, the, the stories he's telling here of the vet who comes home. Really, it's almost like he lived it. Now, I'm sure there was some research that had gone into it. And he, as we know, he'd spoken to vets at numerous points in the years before. But it just seems to me so precise, the story as it's being told. Uh, the runway rushed up at him and he stood out on the blacktop and took a taxi into town. It really, it paints a cinematic picture that I, I think works really well. Yes. I, well, I was looking at the storytelling that, that he was doing for, for Nebraska and USA. This is almost like the best example of it. I mean, he really yes. tells a story from the, from the touchdown, uh, from the landing at the airport to going to the bar and then, but then he's looking for the new job, and he, you know, the or his brother or his friends tell him that they'll get get him his job back down at the rendering factory. And finally, when he's in the river, he's feeling hopeless at that point, and he doesn't know what to make of his life. I mean, he, it's a perfect little story there. Yeah, it, the one that really comes to mind is the title track Nebraska, which also tells quite a tight story, and and of course that one we we know is based on reality because it's based on the Starkweather homicides. To me, this this is another example of that kind of songwriting. And and it, as you say, it's it's highly effective. Oh, it's very effective. Uh, I mean, he really, I mean, he did his, he did his homework on this one, talking to all those vets and reading Born on the Fourth of July. And I mean, he, he, he nailed it here. It's, it's one of these things where I know I'm a little biased, but I feel like this should, this should get more attention in, in, in terms of the, of the of Vietnam related songs. Well, of course, it's going to be overshadowed by Born in the USA. There's just there's no way around that. Very valid uh, point there. Born in the USA, I've always stated, I think it's probably his best written song. It's certainly, and you could say, well, how could you say that? Because it's so misinterpreted. It's misinterpreted by people who want to misinterpret it. We know that. It's not misinterpreted by anyone who's actually listening to the lyrics. They're only listening to a chorus. And go ahead. Well, I was going to say that, and that as you're thinking about it, it's it's the songwriting is very similar to that one. It's almost <laughs> it's it's almost like a mirror or or of the like the alternate there, and it's very similar. I hadn't thought about that until now. He's written so many great songs, but the power of "Born in the USA" and and what it stood for, and even with the misinterpretation, and as he has joked many times, there's a lot of money in misinterpretation. <laughs> But it, it's it, the 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 power born in the USA, and and it is reflected also in "Shut Out the Light." They were such good companion pieces on that single. Uh, you do think just wrapping up here. Have have there ever been a single that where the A and the B sides fit so perfectly together to tell a complete story? It's it, I don't know that there has been. No, I think my, a friend of mine called. I think my friend Brian called it the most thematically appropriate. Uh, a B side pairing ever, and I mean, I, I admit I don't know all all of the uh, forty the B sides of all the forty fives released say in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, but uh, and I got to think this is in the top five, if not number one. Yeah. So that complete tracks disc two. We've done tracks disc four, which I guess leaves disc one and three. I don't know how much we're going to have to say about disc one. We'll have to talk about that. <laughs> disc three, we're going to have considerable <laughs> amounts of things to say. So, well, we, we we've we've covered a lot of disc three in our uh, in that Born USA sessions that we did that a couple of years ago. So Th- that is true. But uh, yeah, we we could well, still have a lot to say about it now. 
we'll have to see when we get to that. And hopefully at some point, regardless of how they come out, the, the other Born in the USA tracks, which we haven't heard yet, A Gun in Every Home and and all those other songs will hopefully emerge. And, uh, you know, we'll perhaps do it all together in, in one big discussion. But that would be nice. Oh, yeah, it would be. And. I think that's it for this evening. Let's wrap up here. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. It's the part of Evergreen Podcast. If you want to reach out to us on Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast. Our website is nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the head-banging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Welcome.